Hello and welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Sporak. I'm here with Abdal Hakim Murad. How are you? I'm great, Josh. It's good to be back. Glad to have you here. And just before hitting record, I started talking about the journey that I've been on of not just at the beginning, I thought, okay, I just got to be a little more, uh, recycle a bit more, maybe sacrifice a bit more. And as I've acted, it's been, it's really opened up a lot of discovering it's less about what are the technological fixes. And it's a lot more about where did we go? Where do we make these turns that it feels like a lot of the proposed solutions are actually stepping on the gas of what have created our disconnect from nature. And that's got me talking about, I was thinking about your description of Morocco, I think some other places, but that's one I remember where you said that people smile more. People, maybe there's a, a connection with a TV, but that's not really how they're living. And I think a lot of people look at that living, what I would now call, and I'm not sure how you would characterize what you're describing there, but to me, it's like returning more to a connection with nature and not just a material connection. I think a lot of people today, at least in the mainstream, it seems in America, would describe that as a step backward, a step away from the progress that is making life better, that is bringing wealth to everybody. And that has not been my experience, that it's, I don't see that as a step backward. Well, the whole idea of a straightforward linear progress, which has us kind of grunting in caves in the upper Paleolithic and now walking around with broad smiles on our faces, uh, I think has, has had its day. I think we recognize that uh, we're more comfortable in so many ways. Uh, but I think that we also recognize that every technological and philosophical leap entails certain risks, existential risks. We have a center for existential risks at the University of Cambridge now, and uh, science is uh, can be dangerous. So I myself don't see things in terms of progress, but rather a kind of drift. And I think that one needs to be a fairly prayerful person, somebody who believes that actually there is a, a hand guiding humanity that is benign if one is to fully retain sanity in the face of these extraordinary uh, imponderables that are being up unlocked. So, yeah, I think that some of the sustainability movement has to be linked to an optimism about technologies, and some of that optimism I share. And we have this new green mosque in Cambridge, which is full of the, the latest spanking new uh, sustainability technologies and has to be. Uh, but at the same time, I think that perhaps we should be stressing more low-tech sustainable solutions involving virtues that humanity used to be familiar with via the religions of renunciation, pacing ourselves, respecting the seasons, eating certain things that fit the place and the season rather than whatever happens to be flown in and cling-filmed at the local supermarket. So I think that uh, it has to be a kind of mixed view. The future will be better and worse. And the solution to the current climate change crisis has to be a complex mix, I think, of the high-tech and the traditional. You talked about a few things there, and, and that I want to pursue more than one. You mentioned the mosque, the, the high-tech green mosque yep. in Cambridge, and you played a major role in that. It feels like that might be an embodiment of, of the mix of things that you were talking about. Yeah, and we wanted it to be a symbol of the way in which religion is good for everybody and not just its own members, because climate change is non-denominational in that its uh, features don't stop at national borders. Um, we pay no attention at all to 
human artificial constructs of that kind. So it's something for our neighbours, for passers-by, for the city of Cambridge, for the world, really, rather than just uh, a place to keep a particular denomination dry when it rains. So we have a mixture of high-tech and low-tech solutions. The low-tech solutions include sourcing things locally as much as we can, so we try to use local bricks, for instance, uh, UK-sourced stone. We don't have any quarries in muddy Cambridge, sir, but <laughs> England is small, so we managed to get some uh, some pretty nice Portland stone. And also the use of uh, local contractors as much as possible, because the building trade, as I soon realised, is one of the worst offenders in terms of greenhouse gases and generally ripping up the planet. And uh, increasingly, I think, even national governments are realising that we need to move away from this idea that you just demolish the old and build something new and towards the idea of refurbishment and, and repurposing older buildings. Well, there weren't any old buildings that we could readily repurpose as a mosque in Cambridge, although there are plenty of redundant churches, but they wouldn't really suit. So we had to build something from scratch. But we had, of course, to make the economic question sometimes about whether we should go for something that's a bit cheaper that involves something that's a bit more destructive climatically, even if the end result would be a more sustainable mosque, or whether we would pay a little bit more in order to source things locally. So I think that's one of the sort of low-tech aspects of the sustainability movement that can be very humanly beneficial, because if we are supporting local growers, for instance, local farmers, uh, local employees, local craftsmen, rather than buying things on the global market and bringing in our tomatoes from New Zealand or wherever, uh, we're actually helping to build up local networks and solidarities that have been very damaged and, and suffered forms of attrition as a result of globalisation. So I think there's very positive sort of social consequences for communities of trying to do low-tech green things. And we certainly found that bringing in local craftsmen. One of the woodworkers who built our clock, for instance, in the mosque, um, has his workshop just half a mile away. So it was uh, it was nice to do that, so supporting crafts. Uh, it was an unexpected knock-on effect, a kind of bonus that we got from deciding to go green, that actually we could go community as well in the process. I think you were describing the low-tech things. Were there high-tech things as well? Oh, yes. Um, there aren't too many low-tech solutions if you're looking to generate electricity on the site, for instance, unless you happen to live next to a waterfall, perhaps. But So we have uh, PVAs, photovoltaic arrays on the roof. Uh, even though Cambridge is grey and overcast most of the year, that does generate on average about 15 20% of our uh, electricity consumption. And those, of course, have to be state-of-the-art because the newer they are, the, the better their yield. Uh, they're actually donated by a local Muslim company that tries to be ethical and support green development in Muslim countries. They do a lot of work with mosques and other facilities in remote areas of Morocco, for instance. So they actually donated £150,000 worth of kit that's sitting on the roof of the mosque. We have air source heat pumps. We have various technologies that aid in making sure that the rainwater that we harvest uh, is safe a public building. We have various forms of ventilation, which are low energy, but some of them are quite high tech. There's a building management system whereby everything in the building is controlled from one screen or potentially even remotely. And that, you know, that's an example of how you have to go high tech. 
uh, with all of the problems of the thing going wrong <laughs> that that entails. So, yeah, it, it's a mixture. And I think that that has to be the way we go. Uh, it has to be a mixture of the high tech and the low tech. Um, there's no kind of ideological solution in terms of choosing one over the other. Was the whole decision to go in this direction? I mean, you said it was, um, you could have gone some with some cheaper things that even might have been, how deliberate was it? And how much was it just like, this is how we're doing things these days? Like, was it a lot of the board of directors or whatever the equivalent deciding body would be like really examining their values? Or is it something that's easy to do now because enough people have done it that way? Did, was it a connection to the, the mission of the mosque, if that's the right way to put it? I mean, it's it's a really hard call because obviously the building was expensive. It was about twenty four million pounds the build of it, and we were under pressure from our donors to uh, push the figures down as much as we could. But then you have a question: Should you bring in glass that's from a local manufacturer uh, or even local craftsmen supporting them and the local community, and not paying for some ship to take them all the way from Argentina or somewhere, even if it costs a little bit more? So it was a process of endless budgetary arguments and ethical trade-offs that I think most people who've dealt with sustainable building in particular, but most aspects of the sustainability movement will be familiar with. How far do you go? How much are you prepared to pay in order to do the right thing? The sky is never the limit. And you talked about earlier, there has to be, I forget how you put it, but something like the, the, there has to be an element of prey, of, of which I, I took to mean, actually, I'm not sure what, I think of a mosque as a place to pray. It's a place where community gets together. Does do these choices affect the experience of what a mosque is for for the kind of people who meet there? That is actually quite a deep question. I take it that if people can see that a place of worship was conceived not just as a symbol of the arrival of a community and a place for it to assert its identity but as something that is concerned with larger questions of human flourishing, that there are more blessings, to use the old word, in the place, that there's a kind of luminosity, a kind of goodwill. The intention of the place is benign, and I think people pick up on that. Very many of our visitors at weekends, maybe more than half, are actually not worshippers. But people have just heard about the building because it's won various prizes and it's a local landmark now. And they're not coming to worship, but nonetheless, I would like to think that they come away with something that's to do with the intention behind the building. And architecture, perhaps more than other arts, can really affect our mood in ways that can be quite important. Just yesterday, I was sitting on a train in the north of England and uh, we came, well, we began in Scotland. In Scotland, it's illegal to have alcohol on trains, but in England, it's legal. So as you go south from Edinburgh <laughs> across the border, everybody brings out their, their booze. <laughs> and the uh, very jolly four Newcastle ladies sitting next to me did that and consumed a considerable quantity. And then we went past Durham Cathedral, almost in front of our noses. And they just stopped. They put their phones down. They were silent. They just looked at this incredible miracle in stone that was mutely, I guess, preaching to them. And it had an impact. So there's something about uh, the sacred that's to do with the intentions and the prayerfulness and the humility of its representatives that can really have a major impact. So we realize this 
rather slowly, I think. But it, it is an important feature of a, of a sacred space that it isn't just a place for certain religious functionalities, but is a place where people can reintegrate themselves, feel a bit mindful, feel peaceful, uh, reconnect with the essential seriousness of, of life on earth. And if we give that to our non-Muslim, even sort of atheist visitors, then I think that's another another service that the building is providing. I'm going to indulge in one more question about the about the mosque, because the pictures that I've seen of the interior, it looks very organic. I'm not sure, like tree, I see trees in a lot of it, a lot of it. And I felt like that's nature is a timeless, universal way to connect people. And I, so besides the environmental or the, the technological design, I would guess there are a lot of conscious decisions about the, the aesthetic design. Yeah, I mean, the trees are actually really high tech because to get wood to behave in the way that we've made it behave with these complex arabesque patterns that open up over your head, you need uh, uh, some very sophisticated tech. But uh, it doesn't come across as being very high tech when you actually look at it. And it does feel like a forest. And I think that was the architect's intention. There's something about going into a forest that reconnects us, I guess, with ancient primeval memories of being not just looking at nature, but actually surrounded by it, as if you're in a womb, nature is above you, around you. Uh, and there's a certain sense of protection and ease, which people feel in the presence of trees, I think. I don't think anybody dislikes trees, <laughs> whatever else they might not like. It's kind of universal that there's a certain sense of of the miracle of life, of the defying of gravity, of the creation of beauty out of the stony earth, but also the way in which the branches reach out and somehow provide, obviously, home and shelter for birds and squirrels and who knows what else, but also somehow are embracing us. And it is quite common in Muslim architecture to have mosques that are like forests of trees. Uh, maybe the most famous one is actually here in Europe, the great Umayyad Mosque in Cordoba, which is a thousand years old, which is still substantially intact. And I think people do feel that they're being sort of taken care of somehow when they enter the building, even though it's made of stone in that case. But still, there is a certain sense of reconciliation to a lost natural habitat that people find refreshing and consoling. Now going back, to, I'm going to segue over to you when last you spoke. I walked you, I invited you to think of something to do to act on your values, your environmental values. And you talked about how you'd been thinking about, I think, cutting your meat intake. And I'm curious. And so you committed to, I think it was half it, having it. I'm curious how that went. Yes, it wasn't a terribly ambitious promise, I must say. We do have already kind of hardwired into the rules of the religion various things about partial abstention from certain foodstuffs. The prohibition on pork is the most obvious one, but also the fasting month of Ramadan is a time when we really quite radically reorient our day and hopefully learn a bit of discipline about uh, eating and self-restraint and learn that actually we don't need certainly comfort eating as much as we usually like to think. So Something like cutting down on meat can be construed as a sort of fast, I suppose. After all, the Catholics now have reintroduced, thanks to Pope Benedict, uh, the rule on no meat on Fridays. That's been uh, resuscitated, and I think very positively received by a lot of environmentally uh, savvy Catholics. So in, in my case, well, I do exist in quite a 
complex social environment and sometimes stuffing people with kebabs is very much part of Muslim hospitality in the sort of Abrahamic spirit, I suppose, killing the fatted calf for the for the guest. So it, it's a little bit difficult to turn your nose up and plead a partial fast when you're in that situation. Um, so I don't think that I've kept it up precisely to the 50% level, but I have been certainly much more conscious of the fact that our relationship to meat and therefore to the animal kingdom is systematically abusive. And the idea, for instance, of a $5 chicken is intrinsically wrong and disgraceful when you consider the uh, ethical compromises and the environmental sacrifices that have to be made in order to produce a kind of cling film wrapped frozen ball that calls itself a chicken in the local supermarket. And the fact that it was genetically engineered and injected with growth hormones and then with tenderizers before being killed and probably wouldn't be able to survive for a moment in the wild and can hardly stand up because its breasts are so enormous. Uh, that is shocking and no significant world religion should tolerate that for a moment. So it hasn't just been about consuming less meat but about reflecting a little bit about what's going on in the kind of animal Auschwitz world of the big slaughterhouses and the way in which you know, we've, we've turned the, the miracle of the animal kingdom and, and animals are that order of creation with which you can have an empathy and, and friendship even across the species barrier, turning that into just another resource to be used and abused by our, uh, our obsessed species. It's, it's one area, I think, where the ethical has to be coupled with the whole green agenda, the climate change agenda. And of course, the meat industry is one of the main sources of not just carbon, but also methane gas emissions and needs to be smacked down, cut down to size on those grounds as well. So uh, yeah, I think even though I've not been totally successful, I think it's helped me to think a little bit when shopping, when eating, when helping myself at buffets. Yeah. Uh, the shocking spectacle of the full English breakfast, for instance, uh, holds two charms for me, for me now. So I think it has been useful. But I think that we need to think not just about the quantity, but also the quality. Questions of additives, questions of what the animal has been injected with, about what exactly it has been fed on, uh, also deeply concerning. And as part of my extended family, uh, one branch of the family farm uh, in England, they have an organic halal farm. And that's a, an industry which is now gathering pace. And in, in the United States as well, the organic halal industry is, is a growing thing, increasingly popular amongst younger members of the Muslim community. So it's seen as a form of worship, a type of renunciation, asceticism, an expression of gratitude for the miracle of the gifts of, of food. But also, I think, as a kind of gesture of protest, I think the organic movement is a kind of raised fist against the horrific industrialization of uh, humanity's life support system. Animal liberation is necessary, I would say. Um, animals clearly do have rights. So, yeah, I think it, there's a rich range of issues that are raised by this. And I'm hoping to continue this partial fast because actually we don't need much meat 
I would say. We can't exist without it, although we're naturally carnivores for the great bulk of the history of our species, hunter-gatherers, not just eating berries, but sort of spearing mammoths at the same time. It's kind of natural to what we are insofar as that is an argument, but uh, the environmental cost of agribusiness and particularly the commodification of animal life is something that is quite shocking and quite unsustainable. And I think individuals as well as governments have to think very carefully about that. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm curious about the ratio of what you described. I think a lot of that you knew ahead of time and this gave you a chance yep. to act on it. You're, or did it? Did this lead you to increase your awareness or knowledge of agriculture, the, the industrial agriculture? Yeah, I think, I think it did. And I think that you know, if you, as you walk around the supermarket, you see all of these denatured products that come from some natural environment but have been put into tins or uh, cling film, or into polystyrene cartons and cubed and diced fish from fish farms. And it's, uh, from a traditional religious point of view, you could see that as kind of an abuse of God's creation. But also, I find actually supermarkets a strangely spiritual place in some ways, because despite everything that we do to mediocritize the wonderful produce of nature, it's still pretty extraordinary. Um, I like to linger in kind of the vegetable area and the fish counter in particular, just to see the, the beauty and the diversity of what is there. I find it quite spiritually refreshing. If you can't take a hike in the hills, you can at least go down to the local supermarket and uh, refresh your awareness of the, the beauty and the diversity of creation. So I think that's been helped a little bit, certainly. Do you mind walking through, if you don't mind, an experience that you had over this time of a specific instance? when maybe you might have gotten meat and this time you didn't, or you looked at something and you saw something you didn't see before, if anything stands out? Uh, I'm not sure that there have been any luminous experiences uh, other than the fact that you do notice, particularly when you have a, a dish that contains meat and other things as well, and maybe the meat is just peeping out slightly of the corner of a pie or it's there somewhere in the pizza or at the bottom of the bowl of soup, but not really very salient. And you do then think, well, did I need that at all? What is actually added to this dish by the fact that there's 5% flesh of an animal in it? Is it really necessary? Uh, so I had a few moments like that, I suppose, where I saw uh, what was pink or what was brown or what was fishy peeping out at me. And I thought, well, what's the point of this really? Do I really need that? Will I feel any better afterwards? A momentary tingle of the taste buds, perhaps not even consciously acknowledged, and then what's the difference? Uh, so, yeah, there, there are a few moments like that. The, the non-necessary nature of a systematic carnivore lifestyle, I think, became clearer to me. I'm going to be very geeky and nerdy and say, I think omnivore, not carnivore. <laughs> omnivore, yes, almost omnivore. This, unfortunately, we can't eat and process and render organic again most of the packaging. It'd be pretty nice if we could 
Mm-hmm. And what was the emotional experience of it? Was it deprivation? Was it was it discovery? Was it fun or it, it's about odd? consciousness? I think being aware uh, that if you're in, say, a fasting situation or you have dietary regulations, as many religionists have, uh, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, and so forth, it does tend to add to your your God consciousness or a certain wariness that you're not just reaching for everything that might taste good, but there's certain consequences and certain boundaries that probably again reconnects us to something very ancient because food taboos seem to be present in a lot of primordial societies. There may be certain reasons why that is actually good for us in certain ways, not sure, but there's something uh, rather ancient and dignified, I think, about having boundaries relating to food, whether or not it's I'm going to eat less meat or whether it's I'm going to eat only meat that has been brought to the end of its life in some meaningful and ritualized way rather than just chopped up by a machine with there being no higher purpose. I'm reflecting on dignified and, and the dignity involved or not, depending on which direction one goes. I haven't really, dignity is not something I've, I've explored as much it makes a lot of sense. Yes, I suppose what I'm thinking about specifically in connection with meat is the way in which the animal's life comes to an end. And I think that there is an intrinsic enormity that human beings intuit in the the deliberate act of ending animate life. Uh, Killing a lamb, for instance, is a pretty outrageous thing to do. When you think about it, small children in particular will will cry when they're told where the lamb chops come from. And that's a healthy reaction uh, because we do intuit our position as part of the natural world and hence there's a natural empathy. But insofar as the act itself is gently ritualized and certain ethical procedures are maintained so in the islamic system the animal can't be killed in the presence of other animals because it might frighten them you have to use a very sharp blade etc there's similar things in the kosher regulations it's actually a very beautiful and dignified thing and that it's done with a prayer and with a gesture towards the almighty who has authorized this apparent enormity uh, that the thing becomes much more dignified yeah and uh what happens in halal kosher slaughterhouses may be one thing, but what actually happens in traditional villages, in traditional religious places where animals are understood um, and in a sentimental way, but they're understood, they're communicated with, they're loved, they're named, and then they come to an end of their lives and it becomes an occasion for gratitude and celebration. I think that's actually a very healthy and normal human thing. But yes, there has to be a ritual, certainly. The idea of eating something that has been killed by an electric machine that drowns the chicken and electrocutes it at the same time without there being any expression of ritual or reverence or deep respect, I find that to be quite shocking. Yeah, this is, if we simply just keep making things more and more efficient, then we just lead to that. And it, 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 every step of the way seems like it makes more and more sense, and then we find ourselves with thousands of chickens per hour going through this electrified water and, and we've lost our dignity and we've sacrificed dignity and humility. Yeah, the Islamic tradition even has the idea that animals will call human beings to account if they feel that they have been treated unjustly. There's a famous medieval story 
in Arabic that's still very popular. They turn it into children's books and so forth, which has all of the animals uh, on the Day of Judgment all getting together and going to complain to God about the way in which human beings treated them. And they were kicked and the horse was burdened too much and uh, animals were kind of eaten and it's an outrage. And so they want God to treat humanity with rigor. But then it turns out that despite what humanity has done, still some human beings can be saints and can improve the world and can treat uh, creation in a decent way. And so God lets us off. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a well-known story, but it's based on a certain pious anxiety about uh, creation abuse. I think it, it bespeaks a rather healthy attitude of humility. Now I want to switch to something that actually I forgot to mention this. One of the someone emailed me and said that they listened to this to the, our previous episode and also saw you on another podcast or a video. And you talked about how I should have watched it just before talking to you, but I think you talked about how my approach was individual action. And though I was talking to one person, it was just I was asking you to act in one individual way. But I think that my goal is to, I think a lot of people view acting sustainably as deprivation and sacrifice. And if they do, if they try to influence others, they're influencing others, asking them to give up and to do something which I think is, again, like they don't want to do it. And I think that makes it very ineffective. I think it's very difficult to, it won't spread if people feel that way. Well, we're in an age of mad individualism where people are affronted if they're told that they have to change their ways. Uh, that is, is not a solution, I'm afraid. The fact is that the ecosystem is under unprecedented threat and we have to moralise and preach and shout and yell and protest and sit down in front of traffic and make everything very inconvenient for people who don't seem to think that this matters. So we're not oppressing them. Ultimately, this is in everybody's interest, but we may have to put up with a few brick bats and a certain degree of unpopularity. But that's prophetic religion is all about that. You stand up for justice and what's right, and even if people think you're a pain in the neck. I hope also to bring to the world people who experience it and say, oh, I should have done this earlier. Not just I have to do it, or if I don't do it, everything's going to fall apart. But what was I doing before? I wish I'd changed earlier. Because I, it's certainly a message that I wish that, or an experience or uh, role models I didn't know about when I started. And that's one of, one of the reasons I, I try to bring on the podcasts, leaders, influential people, people of renown, that others can say, oh, I've been following this person before. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but you see what, what you're doing, Joshua, by asking people to make certain sacrifices is actually helping them to wake up a little bit out of the semi-comatose state of mass indulgence that is doing nobody any favours. And if you encourage one person to eat a little bit less meat for a few months, well, maybe you're also encouraging that person to get into a different frame of mind whereby they realise, well, I don't need so much. I should be more reflective I should be more mindful and aware of things. I need to think about these things. And hey, actually making sacrifices in a certain weird way actually feels perfectly okay that all of the world religions are based on the fact that if you renounce certain pleasures, you actually end up feeling better as a result of it. I hope to get that result, although I wouldn't characterize it as making sacrifices. That, that's how it's characterized. Mm -hmm. What I intend to do and try to do is to ask people for their values and then invite them to act on those values, which is 
almost necessarily not a sacrifice, but to act on what they care about. It's intrinsic rather than extrinsic. Yeah, but making sacrifices perhaps is a kind of slightly moralistic religious way of expressing it, but I think it's a valid way. We all have to make sacrifices for our families, for our future. Why not for the planet? So I don't see it as being a a bad way of putting it, is it? Okay, yeah, I I think for you it's not. And especially because of, as I read you, the, the associations that you have with eating and not eating certain things at certain times mm-hmm. that you've already, it's already become for you, sacrifice is not bad, is not giving up. It may be giving up something material, but not just, but maybe bringing you something non-material. I think not everyone sees it that way. Or not everyone has had those experiences to reach that point. Okay, I can see that it may be a little bit hard to sell the idea of sacrifice rather than the idea of switch to another no less cool lifestyle. I think that's fair enough. I'm also curious with the with the meat, is it something you plan to continue, accelerate, decelerate? Well, I think I've known for a long time that I need to reduce my meat consumption and particularly to be more discerning. Unfortunately, in our Muslim community, People, especially those who come from poorer parts of the world where meat is a luxury, once they have uh, a little bit more disposable income, they do tend to overconsume meat and pay insufficient attention to where it might come from and what the health implications might be. We have a significant diabetes problem in the Muslim community. Uh, if you go to Saudi Arabia, unfortunately, you'll see that the young people are stuffing their faces with fried chicken all the time. And they have you know, a diabetes catastrophe there. I think the second highest rate anywhere in the world. So uh, yeah, it's something that I certainly intend to continue. And it's also prophetically mandated because the uh, the prophet founder of Islam would go without meat or any kind of cooked food for months simply because of his his poverty. And uh, there's plenty of pious Sufi mystical traditions in Islam, not just ascetical ones, which regards the consumption of anything that's more than what you really need as being a kind of distraction from what's really important in life. Well, I, I wanted to get to hear your experience of of that. You know, after talking to you, I realized this is now me just talking about my experience of our first conversation. I'm by no means a, a scholar of Islam. And, but I, I realized I, I've learned a little bit, but this is the first time I've spoken to someone and heard from that person, their personal experiences. And unless you really want to dive into it, I'm not going to go into it now, but I'd love to continue that conversation. And I know that even a long series of conversations would be it's barely scratching the surface of what there is to get there. But I really, uh, first I want to express gratitude if just, I, I don't know. I mean, you were just talking, but it was just, more eye-opening to me than I'd anticipated. So that was a rewarding experience for me. Oh, well, I'm one of those people who love talking about themselves, I guess. But uh, I think that the religions are popularly understood nowadays as being assemblances of restrictions and old-fashioned attitudes, uh, and that the enormous internal sort of beauty and richness and enrichingness of the religions is underestimated. Everybody knocks the uh, uh, the evangelicals in the US. Actually, you know, I've had some evangelical American students and their views on politics or abortion may not be the same as mine, but they do have an enormously uh, rich personal life. Uh, they're good at music. They often sing very well. They tend to have strong and stable 
family relationships. And I think that that richness that religious gi- religion gives to people is uh, massively underestimated, even by Hollywood, I would say, um, which used to be generally kind of dewy-eyed and sympathetic to a kind of mainstream religion, but is increasingly, I think, acquiring a secular hard edge. That's unfortunate because people are religious usually because they get something rich and beautiful and sustaining out of it. So you've heard a little bit about my experience, but I think if you talk to people in any world religion, probably you'll find uh, that there are unexpected treasures there that people are perhaps quite happy to talk about. Yeah, I think I'll, unless you want to go, I'll wrap up this conversation and leave an open invitation if you're game to share more some other time. Uh, but to wrap up this one, is there anything to that any of your experience of since last time or anything to share directly with listeners? Not really, except that I suppose the preacher in me would say people need to slow down a little bit, not to fill their lives with texts and additional tasks. Be lazy sometimes, be quiet sometimes, be bored sometimes, and allow the spirit to settle a little bit. And then you'll see the intrinsic wonder and amazingness of the world. And that's the basis for faith and whichever way that might take you. you know, faith is something that always enriches, makes us more profound. We're just running too fast. Um, the train's going so fast, we can't really see the nice scenery any longer. And I think humanity is really hurting. And I think that that uh, blindness is one reason why we don't treat the natural world, the ecosystem, which which we need to support us with sufficient reverence and respect. Abdallah Hakim Murad, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.